All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, We're not quite ready to jump back into our series in 1 Corinthians yet uh, this morning, uh, because in light of this week's events, I wanted us to take a pause and uh, to consider what it is. What is our hope in life and death? What is our hope in life and death? What assurance do we have, not only in death, but also in life? And the answer is this, and I invite you to read it with me. What is our hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong both body and soul, life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Easter is last week, but it's never in the rearview mirror. It may feel like that. We had the big service, the family lunch, we get the Easter clothes out. But in reality, the reality of what we celebrate on Easter is the resurrection, and that is a daily reality for us. What is our hope in life and death? What is our hope? It's the resurrection of Christ Jesus. This past week, as I mentioned this morning, uh, one of our beloved members, Miss Jenny, went from life to life. She passed from this life and walked into eternal life with Christ Jesus. She was a faithful servant of Alpine for many years. She worked in the nursery and in children's ministry. And although she was 90 years old, her passing still feels unexpected. She was always vibrant and full of life. And so when something unforeseen happens in our lives, uh, maybe it's uh, the loss of a job, a broken arm, the loss of a loved one, what we tend to do is we go back to these moments and replay what happened right before then. Whenever there is a death of someone that's close to us, we tend to go back in our minds and replay those last moments with them. What was our last conversation? You see, the reason I believe that we do this is because deep inside of our hearts, we, if we don't believe, we desire that this is not final. We, if we don't believe, we desire that there's something else after death. And the reason for this is because in Ecclesiastes, it tells us this, that God, he has written eternity on our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11, every person, he has written eternity on our hearts. So now, as we consider this, that he's written eternity on our hearts, what is our hope in life and death? It's Christ alone. Now, I want you to consider with me what we've been talking about the last few weeks with Easter and with the week leading up to Easter, all of the events that are surrounding Jesus' life. You can imagine once the disciples ran away when Jesus was arrested and crucified, I imagine you can be thinking that they are replaying the last moments with Jesus in their minds. When we think of the last moments of Jesus' life, we go back to things like the Last Supper the breaking of the bread, washing the disciples' feet, going into the garden and praying. But the Gospel of John goes into the most detail of what actually was said that night. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't include the Lord's Supper, but what he does include is powerful. And it's a couple of conversations that they, the disciples have with Jesus. Jesus tells them in John 13 and 14, he says, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. And then Jesus tells the disciples, where I'm going, you can't come. And then Peter, the bold, he responds, Jesus, wherever you go, if it costs me my life, I'm willing to follow you. 
Thomas, you can already see the doubt starting to creep in. He says, wait, where are you going? Philip says, show us the Father. And if we've read the gospel stories up until this point, we realize how far off these questions are, how much the disciples do not get it. Jesus says to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We can see the dramatic setup for Peter, where he's saying, I'm going to go and I'll follow you to the death, but we see the opposite happening where we know that he's going to say, I don't know this man, and he curses and spits. I believe what Jesus is telling us in this moment is giving us a hope for life and death. And if you have your Bible with you, John 14, uh, verses 16 through 20 and 25 through 27 is where we're going to be looking at today. Because here's the question I want us to work with. We might answer the question, well, what is our hope in death? Well, the resurrection. But what's our hope in life? Sometimes life can be very difficult. Marriages break, jobs end, relationships dissolve. So what is our hope in life? What is our hope when we find ourselves in seasons of sin? Jesus is going to tell us here. I have it on the screen. John 14, starting in verse 16, it says this. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever in the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I will live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Verse 25, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So Jesus, on the way to the cross, knowing everything that's about to happen with the disciples, he gives them this hope that there's a coming advocate. And who is that coming advocate? It's the Spirit. Well, the Spirit, it can be maybe unfamiliar with how we define it, maybe in different denominations, but let's first see what we understand about the Spirit according to Jesus. The first thing we see is the Spirit is not a force, but a person. It's not some divine wind or energy, but a person that after Jesus leaves, the Father will send. The second thing that we see is that Jesus says that he will be leaving, and this person, the Spirit, the Advocate, will be coming. And if he does not go away, the Advocate won't come. But once I'm gone, gone, I will send him. But in another way, look at verse 18, in another sense, Jesus also comes. By sending the Spirit, Jesus also, in a way, is sending himself. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, if we pulled the room here, uh, we probably have different translations of the Bible. We get various answers for how this is translated, from advocate to helper to counselor to comforter. And if you study the Bible and you come across something with multiple translations like this, it's usually because the Greek behind our English word is very nuanced, and we don't have really an exact one-for-one match of it. There's a lot of words that could come into it. The Greek word here is paraclete, 
and we get two meanings from this word. The first, para, means to come alongside someone, to offer assistance. So think of like a paramedic or a paralegal. You call someone that's going to come alongside you and give you assistance. But kaleo means to direct or give direction or call. And this is why we have the nuance in these translations, because they're trying to get to the heart of it. You see, we could translate it counselor, and our minds might be drawn to a therapist that listens. Jesus will send the Spirit to give us a therapist that listens, to give us some input or device, a better definition of this word, though, might not be a counselor as a therapist, but counselor as like legal counsel, your defense attorney. And this comes into play like a paralegal who gives a defense. An attorney doesn't just speak to you, but he also has the power to speak to the judge for you. Some translations might pull the word advocate, and we might not necessarily see all the nuance of the word counselor. Now, what is interesting, I believe, about this is that the New Testament only uses this word twice, paraclete, and we see it in reference as the advocate, as the counselor in the Spirit, but also in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as the advocate speaking of Jesus. It says this, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So in this life, Jesus sends us the Spirit, who's both counselor, comforter, but Jesus is also both advocate. And unless we understand Jesus as our first advocate, we will misinterpret and understand what it means for him to send the helper, the Spirit of truth, our second advocate. If we had to answer what Jesus did on the cross for us, what would we say? He, what did he do? He died for our sins. That's right. And that is absolutely right. In that statement, we are acknowledging, though, that there is a court in which we have to stand before in judgment. When we say that Jesus has died for our sins, what we are also confessing is that we stand to be judged. There is a standard for our lives that we must deal with. And some people will say, "Ah, I don't like that. I don't... I don't like that, or I'm going to be judged, and I don't know that this is the case. But here's the deal. If the Bible is wrong, and there is no God, and there is no bar of justice that we must live up to, it means this, that death and sin is just natural occurrences, that evil and suffering are just products of this world. There's nothing that can be done about it, and there is no hope. Do you understand that? Do you see that? If we deny that we are standing to stand before some standard, that there is a righteous judge, if we deny the existence of a God, then we also deny that death has any meaning at all, that sin and suffering are just natural occurrences of life. But the Bible is right, and there is a hope for you and me. I started off earlier by quoting Ecclesiastes 3.11, that he's written eternity on our hearts, but he's written something else. Listen to Romans 2.15. It says this, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here's what Paul is saying in Romans, is that we know in our mind the sin that we commit. We know 
in our hearts that our lives don't match up to what a standard is, even if it is our own moral standard. What Romans is saying here is that our conscience bears witness, and it's either conflicting our thoughts to accuse us, or in our thoughts, it's just trying to excuse us. It's not a big deal. I didn't really mean it. I can just move on. But Paul is telling us, or Jesus is rather saying, that he is our advocate. And here's what's beautiful about this is that Jesus doesn't come just as an example, although he is our example. He isn't just our comforter, although he is our comforter. He's our advocate. Do you know what it means to be an advocate for you? If I were ever to get into legal trouble and have to go stand before a judge, who do I call? It's an attorney. Attorneys know how to plead cases. Attorneys know how to talk rightly to the judge, how to address the judge and the court. Attorneys, when they give their arguments, they're often eloquent and brilliant, and they make you look eloquent and brilliant. But you see, what we need is not an eloquent and a brilliant lawyer. We need one with a case to make. We need one that goes before the judge with a case to plead on our behalf. And Jesus, our advocate, appeals to the law. You see, Jesus doesn't go to the Father as our advocate and say, well, just give him a second chance. No, John tells us, 1 John says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But 1 John also tells us that not only is he the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive them. How can this be? Because Jesus is not only our advocate, he is also the righteous judge. Jesus is the just and justifier of our faith. He is the righteous judge and the atoning sacrifice. The job of the advocate for Jesus is to intercede on our behalf and say, look at what I have done. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, to this moment, in this very day, is interceding on our behalf. You believe as a follower of Christ Jesus that your sin takes you away from the affection of the Father? No. The affection of the Father is always towards you, those who are in Christ Jesus, pleading on your behalf. Do you think that when my son disobeys me or does something wrong, that my heart is not drawn even more to him? to want him to come back into good relationship with our family, our sisters? Of course it is. How much more so is it for our good Father in heaven? Jesus is our advocate. So we first must understand, before we understand the Spirit as our advocate, we must understand Jesus as our advocate. He intercedes on our behalf. Now the job of the second advocate, the Spirit, is to speak to us about Jesus. He is the Spirit of truth. Verse 25, it says this, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what's it say in verse 26? Will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Consider what Jesus has been telling the disciples over and over again. Who he is, what he's coming to do, and what he's doing. And soon the Spirit will testify to what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3? 
that God loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, for He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that it might be saved through Him. The Son has come because of His great love for us, and the Spirit testifies to us in that. The Spirit illuminates Jesus in the Scriptures. The Spirit testifies to the work of Jesus for us. He exhorts, He entreats, He beseeches us to live lives according with the life and accomplishments of Christ. We sang this morning that boldly we can approach the throne of the Father, and that's taken straight out of Hebrews. So what does this do? What does the the advocate counselor do for us? Christ, the advocate, the counselor, and the Spirit. First, it gives us peace. Jesus tells us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or afraid. Second, it gives us life. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. I don't know that I have this on the screen, but if you want to flip over here to us, it's Hebrews 7, verse 24. I'll give you a second to flip over. Oh, I do. Great. Hebrews 7, 24 and 26, it says this. Jesus as a life. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Do you see what it says? That Jesus lives to intercede for us. It implies that he has this joy to intercede. This is his delight to intercede for you. It's not that he begrudgingly goes to the Father. He has to go before the Father. He lives to intercede for us. What is our hope in life? That Jesus is at the Father interceding for us. Friend, if you are caught in a season of sin, if you are in a repetition or a habit of sin that you just can't seem to break, no, see the Father's love drawing you to Him. He lives to intercede for you. You are safely secure in Christ Jesus. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. He intercedes for us. So how is this helpful for us now? We live in a world where a new tragedy, every news cycle, it just seems like every week something terrible happens in the world. But Jesus tells us that he is going to give us his peace. And here is a few ways that Jesus in his spirit is our present peace. Uh, I've shared this quote before. Uh, It's one that was shared uh, by my mom to me. And it's this, that the Christian life is one that walks forward while looking backward. So we are walking forward while pointing backwards always. Why? It's because we look to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So as I advance forward in this life, my eyes are always set on the work that's been done on the cross. We advance forward in this Christian life by keeping our eyes on the cross and our hope in His return. The power of the Spirit in your inner being is so that He testifies about Christ, and Christ deals, dwells in your hearts richly. Christ, our hope in life, and Christ, our hope in death. Miss Jenny uh, loved our kids here at Alpine, and for the longest time, 
Uh, she served in our nursery, in our children's uh, ministry uh, years ago. But she still loved our kids well now. You could see all the kids running up and giving Miss Jenny a hug every week in between Sunday school and the church service in the morning. And the other day, um, after Jess picked up Russell from school, um, they stopped by the office, and I, I told Russell, I said, hey, buddy, do you remember Miss Jenny? And he said, yes. And I said, well, and he said, Miss Jenny has passed away. She's died. But she is alive with Jesus. He said, she's alive? And I said, yes, she's not, she's not alive here on this earth, but she's alive with Jesus right now in heaven. And you know what he said? He asked me this. What's heaven like? You know, that kind of takes you off guard a little bit. It's a six-year-old, so what do you say? You know, you don't want to get too detailed. So I said, he said, what's heaven like? I said, well, buddy, I don't really know. And he said, well, can't you look it up? <laughs> the Scriptures do indicate for us uh, what the new heavens and the new earth is like. And so for Russell and the rest of us, here's what the Scriptures tell us what heaven's going to be like. First question we might have is, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Do you know? 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says this. 5, 1 through 6. I want to read a big portion here. It says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life, life to life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So this goes back to Jesus, saying the Advocate. He's going to remind us in spirit and truth, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away with the Lord. So what does Jesus, or what does Paul tell us? That when we pass from this life, when we are away from the body, we are instantly present with the Lord. When I was sitting with Miss Jenny in the hospital, I, I, I couldn't help but see my little Jane there too. I think maybe it's because they had the same haircut. And as a dad, I'm way, I would think way too emotionally about these things. But, you know, you, you long to be with your children in, in whatever circumstance or situation in life. But you know what I thought in that moment is that the last moments of a Christian's life are their absolute best here on earth. They're the last seconds of a Christian's life are their absolute best. It's because that is in full glory. You see Jesus fully realized. To be away from the body is to be present from the Lord. You think your best years are behind you? I'm telling you, friend, they are not. Your best moments are yet to come with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what happens when we die? 
For a believer, you are instantly with Christ Jesus. To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. What will heaven be like? Going to Russell's question. Did you know that this isn't the full question? We can't just ask, what will heaven be like? We must also ask, what will earth be like? Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Scripture has this to say about our place in eternity, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And this matches up with what is going on in Scripture, where Jesus will say things that uh, we want to do on earth as it is in heaven, where Paul will say in Ephesians that it's God's purpose to unite heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. God's dwelling place will be permanently with His people, and there is a renewed earth. The new heavens and earth are referred to as a city. What does it mean to be a city? That there are people, buildings, goods, services, arts, gatherings, events. Heaven will be everything that this world is not yet better. It's not, we're not floating around in some immaterial, soulless, bodiless soul on a cloud forever. No, everything will be made right in the new heavens and the new earth, and God will be with his people. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will have physically resurrected bodies. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Whatever ailment, whatever addiction, whatever depression, whatever anxiety will be no more in the kingdom of heaven in a gloriously resurrected body with Christ Jesus. So the question for us this morning is how can we be sure that we get to partake in this with Christ Jesus? A Barna poll showed that for every one person who believes in hell and that they're going to hell, there are 120 people that believe that they are going to heaven. So every one person that believes they're going to hell, 120 believe that they're going to heaven. But heaven is not a default destination. Heaven is not just like programmed default. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. But in Christ Jesus, God is offering us eternal life in Him. That's Romans 6.23. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved us so much that He began became a man to deliver us from our sin. He came to identify with us in our humanity and our weakness, but he did so without sin. Jesus died on the cross without sin, sinless, so that he may pay the penalty of our sins demanded by a holy and righteous God. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished. He means this, that your sins in Christ Jesus are dealt with once and for all. You can't re-crucify Christ. He has been killed and resurrected, 
And that's enough for you to be an atoning sacrifice for Jesus. When he said it is finished, it was finished. And the offer of the gospel is so wonderfully easy. Jesus, our loving Savior, tells us, repent of your sins and come to him. Believe that he is the resurrection and the life and that you will be with him. And the last thing that I want to leave us with this morning is if you've not made that commitment that Jesus is Lord, that if you don't believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the, the life, I, I don't want to ask you why. Why don't you believe in him as Lord? And let's deal with that. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's reason that out a little bit, why you are resisting the good offer from the Lord. And here's my last encouragement to, to us this morning. It's Isaiah 55, 6. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Friend, the scriptures say that the Lord tarries in his return, that he delays in his return because it's his great mercy for us. He delights, he, he desires that all men would be saved. His desire this morning is that you would come to him to partake in his full joy and life in Christ Jesus. And then that gives us mission to go and proclaim this, that Jesus calls you to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray, uh, sin so easily can ensnare and entangle us, and doubt and worry and wonder can so quickly guide us. It can be our default position where we wonder if, if you're good, if you really do love us, if we really can be saved. Father, I, I pray that this morning we see the rich, full, and complete offer of eternal life in Christ Jesus this morning. And Father, I pray that you call those uh, who... I, I pray that you call those who are in sin to yourself, that they may repent and believe. Jesus, as we end our time this morning, I pray that uh, it be for your glory and our good. As we approach the table and the bread and the cup, we are reminded of uh, your death and your resurrection and the hope of life to come. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.